Hello and welcome to this week's instalment of Nucleus Investment Insights. Today we turn our eye back to Australian property as low interest rates have fueled a marked surge in demand as the economy rebuilds post-pandemic. The country's house price party is likely to heat up even further, with bankers reporting that property investors who have long sat on the sidelines are finally beginning to join in the festivities. Heartened by the overall strength in the property market and by the consensus that property prices will continue to climb as the economic recovery continues to pick up pace, it seems investors are being enticed back into the market. What has emerged, however, is a two-speed house price boom. With a superb run-up in prices of suburban houses as space and isolation are sought, prices of inner-city apartments typically favoured by investors have languished. The phenomenon has caught the Reserve Bank of Australia's eye, warning in a recent financial stability review that the closure of Australia's international borders is expected to cause a population, population growth in 2021 to be around 1.25 percentage points lower than previously expected. As demand to rent apartments dwindles, in turn rental yields fall as property owners scramble to meet the market and avoid costly vacancies in the face of rising rates and body corporates. To help colour in exactly the extent of these falling rents, we're lucky to be joined by our friend of the show, Martin North, who is founder of boutique research firm Digital Finance Analytics. Digital Finance Analytics combines primary consumer research, industry modelling, economic analysis and segmentation analytics to provide insight into the dynamics of the Australian property market. And Martin is host of the wildly popular Walk the World channel available on YouTube. Martin North, welcome back to Nucleus Investment Insights. Hi there, thanks for having me back. Great to be great to have you on, and of course, uh, joining us today on the other side, uh, we have uh, to share his thoughts on the emerging two-speed property market and its relevant impacts on our portfolios. We have Nucleus Wells Head of Investments, Damien Classen. Hello, dear Damien. Hi, Tim. Good stuff. And just a quick reminder that before we get started, if you haven't already, uh, to subscribe and click on the notification bell to be notified of when we go live or have a new webinar to watch or follow us on your preferred podcast platform. And we also ask if you'd like to take a moment to click like on the video now to help our show grow. So we'll jump across to our agenda for today. So we're gonna cover off on four key points. Uh, gonna kick off with affordability. We're gonna, going to be rolling into uh, some macro economic factors. Uh, we'll then be zooming through cities uh, and we'll be looking at affordability versus investment uh, and then rolling across to the regions as well. So uh, with no further ado, we can kick off. Uh, affordability, gentlemen, who'd like to begin? Yeah, I might, I might start by framing it because then I want to toss across to, to Martin because I think we're, we're probably talking from a similar, um, a similar perspective on this one. Um, I think there's some really stark divergences. And I've sort of got a chart up um, in, in the property market, depending upon where you're looking and, and, and what you're looking at. And, and I think it's the these tensions that are that are the real key. Um, and, and so there's two parts to it. One is um, we look upon, we've got this property calculator um, and you know the intent really behind that property calculator is to show um, how reliant on interest rates property is. And initially, when we did it sort of pre-pandemic, it was the whole point was basically saying, "Well, look, in in good scenarios, you sort of see interest rates rising, and that's sort of going to cap um, property price rises. Um, but in in bad scenarios, um, uh, there was a limited amount of, of, of interest rate falls that would happen. Mm. But then we had the the coronavirus hit, and we sort of went down the European route, which is saying, "Well, no, we can actually keep." Going, we can go to negative rates negative if we need rates, to. Yeah. But, we just, but basically, the central banks now, the RBA is lending directly to to banks, which was something sort of two or three years ago would have would have thought that this was you know that this is an extreme scenario and it would never happen in Australia. But now it's it's just you know it was it was accepted as part of the whole um, part of the whole fact part of the whole I guess toolkit that they have. Mm. And so I guess knowing they can go to negative rates if things are poor. So it comes back to this this view now on property. You need to say, well, okay, we haven't hit the lower bound. Interest rates can, or mortgage rates can, still keep falling. Mm -hmm. So what? But on the flip side, um, we've got rental growth, which is basically as weak as it's ever been. Um, we've got inflation that's really weak. We've got wage growth that's basically as weak as it's ever been. So all the, all the positive factors when you look at say, you know, can people afford things by by saying, what's your mortgage to rent ratio? All the things that, that 
all the sort of fundamental drivers. I was about to say the fundamentals have the gone fundamentals out the Fundamentals behind it was your rent's weak. You've, so, so there are two main ones for, for affordability. Mortgage, mortgage payments to rent. Can I, you know, how much is it to, to buy a house versus renting a house? And then mortgage payments to, to wages. How much is it to, to um, can I actually afford it? Um, yeah, so when you look at those, the fundamentals are really weak, but the, the interest rate keeps going down and, and potentially will still keep going down. And so yeah, that's that, that real tension between it. Interest rates have never been lower mm. and these other factors, the other fundamental factors have never been worse. Mm. And so that's where I see the tension and I've sort of got you know, these charts just sort of showing where things sit. Um, but I might throw back to Martin first before we get into the chart, maybe throw back to Martin and get his thoughts on these, this, I guess, this tension between the fundamentals and then the, the cost of credit. Mm. It's a very complicated thing. And I guess I always say, and I keep saying, there is not a property market. There are lots of lots of micro markets, Absolutely. right? So you have to look across geographies, property types, all of those things. And frankly, a lot of the mainstream hype relating to property is being quite selective in where they look and what they talk about. Right. So that the first point is you have to go granular. The second point is when you talk about affordability, there, there are two elements to it. One is the continuing service of the mortgage, assuming you're going to be borrowing. And most people still tend to come into the property market with a mortgage of some sort. Mm. The second question is how you repay the capital. And again, all of the conversations that I see at the moment relate to servicing the mortgage, which basically doesn't necessarily deal with the uh, capital, particularly if you do have interest-only repayments, which, of course, more people now have again. The recent APRA data showed that there's actually been a bit of a spike in high LVR lending, high debt-to-income ratio lending, and more you know, interest-only lending. So that's another factor that people need to think about, right? So, so that is a very significant factor when you think about what may happen. The third point is, the Peter Tulip model that the RBA put out some time ago basically said, look, if prices, sorry, if rates drop 100 basis points over three years, home prices on average could rise up to 30%, all else being equal, which recognizes, again, the huge sensitivity there is to home price dynamics and interest rates. And that then takes us to the two critical questions. Well, will rates go lower from where they are? And as you say, the old question of negative interest rates, all those questions there. And of course, <clears throat> what happens when the TFF stops in June? Mm. The very, very cheap, funny, uh, I was going to say funny money, uh, the 0.1% <laughs> money from the RBA, 95 billion paid across so far to the banks to make them lend, another 95 billion following through. And of course, negative interest rates doesn't necessarily mean at the consumer level. If you look in Europe, negative interest rates means essentially the central banks started charging the um, retail banks a premium for any money that they held rather than lent. So and, and, and more importantly, they're paying the banks to lend, though. <laughs> that's mm. exactly right. Yes. So what they're doing is effectively supporting the bank's profitability directly and indirectly, mm. right? And, and you know, think about whether that makes sense. The the other point about this is. Um, when you think about uh, affordability, right, APRA took the hurdles down a couple of years ago now to make it um, possible for people to get bigger loans relative to income. Mm. That is still in place. And, of course, there's a discussion about responsible lending, which we'll probably touch on a bit later in terms of, you know, are they going to make it even easier? But the fact of the matter is that just because the bank then says, sure, you can have a bigger loan, um, doesn't necessarily mean it's a good thing. And so we're seeing loans being written at six, seven, eight times income. And as you hinted, no growth in income and none expected from the Reserve Bank is going to have some negative impact on the forward momentum. So it's a very complicated um, sort of picture is what I'm perhaps underscoring. And and you mentioned, you touched on the TFF there. Do you, you sound as if you think they will finish it? Is that... Mm. I guess I'll take it. I've taken the view that we've got this forever, you know, or you know, until until things recover significantly. But but so what? What do you? I guess what do you? Well, speculate the RBA. There? The RBA in the last statement said ninety five billion paid so far across another ninety five billion to go until June. Then they've got three years to pay it back. Mm. So there wasn't a signal from the Reserve Bank that they were going to do that. They might. They might well. Mm. You know, those that funding zero point one percent is better than bond rates at the moment if you have to raise funds internationally. Of course, a lot of banks are actually 
are benefiting from a strong flow of deposits. So if you look at the ratio of deposits to bonds, um, it's, it's moved quite significantly. But of course, a lot of the banks now are actually uh, benefiting from the, um, the RBA um, a gift, as it were. And I'd also make the point as a result of that, what we're seeing is that the shift in mix is quite significant with effectively government debt sold overseas going up, private debt, particularly from the finance sector, actually going down. Mm. Right. Sorry in, sorry, in terms of interest rate or volumes? Sorry. Volumes. Uh, volumes, volumes yeah. right. Yes. Yeah, because it's been, yeah, being replaced by the, the TFF money, is that? Yeah, it's basically replaced by, you know, the freebies from, from the Reserve Bank plus um, funding from deposits. So mm. therefore, banks at the moment have some interesting and quite different funding pressures from previously. But of course, if they have to tap the international markets after June, that could then change the dynamic with regard to the pricing. Oh, I also yeah. make the other point. Have you noticed how they've turned off their four and five year very cheap mortgages now, the fixed rates? Um, that's changed recently. So there's a little bit of a sense that, well, the inflection on the, on the curve, yield curve, might actually be signaling higher prices later. So they've sort of pulled back on some of those really cheap deals, although you can still get very good one, two year, three year fix. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And so, and so if the, because I guess I, certainly through the modeling, which I, I'm doing, you know, if, if you put the interest rates, if you said, okay, you can borrow now at, you know, 2% ish, I think is rough, rough, the rough biggest, you know, you can get deals lower than that, obviously, but, but it's roughly, you know, low twos for a three year fixed mortgage. Is if that turns into even two and a half or or two point seven five, um, that makes a puts a huge dent in some of these affordability factors because that's your you know you, your denominator is now so big in terms of the the, the size of the mortgage that um, yeah it doesn't take much of a change in interest rates to to really swing around on the factors. No, and that's why a lot of the uh, commentators are now suggesting that prices will be much stronger over the next few months because they still think that that's going to flow through to ever lower rates. And uh, that means that basically people can borrow more. But of course, there is a question about the debt to income ratio and how that is going. And we know that there are a lot of first time buyers who are now doing six, seven, eight times income mm. ratio, right? which is very, very high internationally. It's worth reflecting that there are, you know, in the UK, the Bank of England there has uh, concerns over 4.5 times. And of course, in New Zealand, they brought in macro prudential quite recently, which is essentially trying to cap some of the frothiness in the markets in New Zealand. Of course, prices have gone up more than 22% over 12 months. Right? <laughs> um, same sort of factors as here. And I'll also make the other point. Um, I mean, we should also highlight that this issue of rising home prices as rates fall is not just an Australian or a New Zealand thing, right? No, it's happening not. in most markets around the world, and I believe that it is fundamentally connected directly to the quantitative easing and the liquidity printing and all those things that have actually been happening. So it is a structural problem now, not just here but around the world. Yeah. So yeah, it's partly a reflection of excess liquidity floating around, and and, and some of that is that. Um, I guess the inequality side we've spoken about a few times, just about that. You know, if if, if you take money away from poor people and end up with more, giving more to rich people, then the rich people are going to want to, want to buy new houses with it. And then that other part is just the demand side, isn't it? In terms of the, um, uh, you know, with all the lockdowns going on, everyone's like saying, well, if we're going to get, keep getting locked down, then I'm, I'd like to have a yard to get locked down in, rather than uh, rather than a balcony or a um, yeah, an apartment. And two other factors, of course, everybody is banking on growth in lending, lifts consumer confidence, you know, the wealth effect. And, and so we are seeing a lot of incentives to try and encourage yet more people to be dragged into the market. For example, in the UK, the Bank of England announced uh, uh, yesterday the uh, 5% mortgage, right? So now they're basically, uh, they're going to be uh, underwritten between the sort of the 80 and 95% by the government. So that's going to mean that you don't need a 5% deposit to be able to get in as a first-time buyer in the UK. Of course, we have a similar program here. Mm. So uh, it, they're throwing kitchen sinks, you know, whole kitchens, I'd probably say, to try and actually drag more people into the market. Um, and of course, if you look at the recent statistics in Australia, first-time buyers have made up of a significant proportion of of borrowers into the market relative to previously. And uh, there's no surprise about that. The question is, of course, if incomes remain static 
And if the uh, unemployment rate doesn't um, come back down that quick without the migration, is that a sustainable position? Mm. Yep. Well, or, or does it just mean you just have to keep lowering interest rates to drag more people in? Well, this is the thing, isn't it? Because obviously, there's like a little bit of a social contract in saying, okay, well, well, we can let we can let asset prices inflate as long as we get subsequent, you know, real inflation vis-a-vis wage growth, and then we can inflate away the debt. And you know, obviously, it's worked so well in the past. And, um, and I guess the question I had there was obviously we've seen, you know, the macroprudential um, handbrake come on in in New Zealand. Um, how look? We, we can't be far away from that here, surely. Like you know, what 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 do you think the magic number is? We've got a hit if it's twenty two percent, you know, annually in New Zealand for 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 the local government here to to decide that you know enough's enough. They want they want so, higher prices. <laughs> yeah. So so it's very interesting, of course, because um, Philip Lowe recently said that we're watching house prices, etc. And the Council of Financial Regulators, you know, might be persuaded to do something. I always find that weird because, of course. Council of Financial Regulators is effectively Philip Lowe's other brain because he basically chairs that as well as the Reserve Bank. Right? Oh it's like, how does he? How does he defer? How does he defer to the organisation that he's also in charge of? He's got a different coat that he puts on or something for that meeting, you know, just so he reminds but, himself. <laughs> different yeah, watch. but 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 it's interesting because of course a lot of people have argued that well this time it's different, right? Because a lot of it's owner occupied rather than investment. And uh, with interest rates low, the affordability is easier. So, you know, people are saying, no, 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 you don't need to do it. Um, my own view, though, is that there are risks appearing. And I think I mentioned the APCA statistics from the last time they published them, which showed a remarkable tick up in terms of higher risk lending. It's still lower than where it was previously. Um, but some of the things that they tried to turn off a few years ago because of the worry of high risk, they're now encouraging. So at some point, this has got to actually come to a head. But then, of course, the Reserve Bank and APRA both say house prizes, nothing to do with us. Mm. Um, an interesting question then, well, who in Australia is responsible for house prices and, you know, thinking about them? In New Zealand, of course, the Reserve Bank of New Zealand now has a mandate from the government to consider specifically house price dynamics when they think about monetary policy. Right? Wow. And, uh, that's a recent change. And mm. then, of course, they brought in these macro prudential controls to try and tilt the uh, playing field towards first-time buyers and away from investors in New Zealand. So you have to hold property now as an investor for 10 years to avoid capital gains. Um, so there's going to be a really interesting tension. My own view is if prices continue at the trajectory that they're looking like they're continuing, and, of course, caveat, not all properties, particularly houses, I suspect they're going to have to do something simply because the systemic risks and financial stability risks start getting out of hand again. Mm. Yep. Uh, yeah. I, I, I suspect you might be an optimist there. Uh, sorry. I, uh, yeah. I, I'd like to think you're right. I just I worry about. I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't think APRA is going to. I think they've sort of played their hand every time they seem to play a card that seems to be along the lines of encouraging more. As you said, the RBA is. Well, this is not our really our problem. We just want to get interest. We want to get unemployment down and keep interest rates low. And so, if it means we have to pull the housing price lever. That that's what we're doing. Um, and I think the the government, the federal government, absolutely doesn't want to. They want housing prices house prices as high as they can. Sort of the, part yeah. of their platform, isn't it? So, <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's the wealth effect. It's their um, last yeah. time around. They committed and, prices will be higher. So, so yeah, and, it, and yeah. even if you change governments in whatever you know a year's time or whatever it is, and I don't think the Labour Party wants to do anything that's... No. no, both sides of politics are wedded to the housing Ponzi. And if you look at it economically, the majority of the growth in Australia is from two sources, obviously our resource sector uh, and exports. But then the um, housing construction complex, which is all driven by more people being pulled in, being able to buy more houses, to be able to actually keep the construction cycle going, despite the fact we've got 1.2 million spare properties across Australia at the moment and rising. We've got another 250 to 300,000 units coming on stream over the next 18 months to two years. And of course, we have all the home builder stuff, 120, 130,000 projects, which have now been given a, a, an extra lease on life because, of course, nobody can get construction workers, nor indeed construction parts to build houses. Mm. 
I'd add to that, obviously, the big infrastructure spend as well. You sort of got, for mine, it always seems to be it's either mining boom, uh, housing boom, or infrastructure boom. That's your, you know, how you direct your your construction resources. And having been in construction in the past, it was amazing how people can chop and change between the different industries. Obviously, there's slightly different skill sets at the at the very broad end, but when it comes to just, you know, putting concrete in or doing those sort of things, it, you know, it, yes. It's quite a general sort of labour yeah, uh, pool well, that you can draw from, and, and it is important to note as well, though, from a um, from an economic point of view, uh, a, a housing boom based on detached houses is is way more employment intensive than mm-hmm. a, than an apartment yep. boom. So we've sort of been we've been through an apartment boom and now apartment building boom, and now we're into the house. Yep. So it'd be interesting to hear your thoughts on that, Martin, in terms of yeah supply and yeah. So what we're seeing is lack of houses, not the um, rabbit hutches on the outskirts of town in the high growth areas, we've got too many of those and they're all being built, uh, poor quality construction, very high mortgage um, penetration there, of course, and uh, not much value growth. There is an undersupply of the larger property closer into town, particularly uh, detached, particularly with some land. But they're also now, those people who are buying those are competing directly with builders who want to basically buy that property and subdivide it into, you know, a couple of uh, villas or, um, uh, mm. you know, convert it into uh, a lower rise unit. Uh, I- I've done a lot of studies in and around Sydney and Melbourne and did Brisbane too, looking at the inner suburban areas and the change of character of those areas over mm. the last 10 to 15 years from, you know, standalone properties to villas, in other words, two, three, four, squeezed onto one plot, yep. or indeed, um, you know, multi-storey development, and the planning regs have actually allowed it, of course, as well, yep. is changing the characteristics, changing the price dynamics, and uh, interestingly, of course, not necessarily lifting prices, but actually just increasing supply. So there is a complex question here. Um, and again, it goes back to micro markets. Mm. Yep. And, and I guess along those um, yeah, along that same sort of path, I guess I'm just thinking that uh, I guess we're going the the building of these. So we're starting to build out the suburbs. Um, mm. Yeah, there's that dynamic of going. Somebody sells a house for you know two million dollars because it's on a big block of land, and then subdivided into um, four villas, which all sell for seven or eight hundred thousand. Is that um, yeah, that, that that plays with the house price index, indexes as well at the start, doesn't it? Because it sort of goes, a lot of them don't have, while they try and do some sort of hedonic measures and stuff like that, the, the net effect is though something like that is very hard to account for in in um, yeah, in house price statistics. It, it, it is very hard to get a good read. And, you know, again, I, I always say you have to go really, really granular. You can't take the generic price index for Sydney and extrapolate it into every postcode and every property type. It just doesn't work. You know, you've actually got to go really granular. And so, for example, New South Wales, I look at the value of general data that comes out once the price is settled. That gives us a better read as to what went on. But as you say, if you've got a single standalone property uh, that's now converted into three, four villas, um, that profile, that price profit profile is completely different. And what I find in quite often as I do my one-on-one conversation, when I talk to individuals about the particular suburb is they find themselves, if they're looking for a house, they're absolutely up against builders who want to buy it to make a profit by effectively, you know, knocking it down or converting it and putting multiple ones. And that is having a big distortionary effect, particularly in some of those inner suburban areas close to our major cities. Mm. Now, it was for a while there it was difficult for developers to get the finance. Are you seeing that that it is starting to, to ease up in terms of developers? Um, yeah, so I'm seeing smaller projects getting financed relatively easier now. The mm-hmm. high rise, not so much. So the big, uh, you know, multi-story developments that needed um, uh, a lot of pre-sold to be able to go and get the finance is still there. And in fact, uh, the conditions being attached by the banks to funding high-rise development have increased significantly in the last six to twelve months. Plus, of course, the fact that valuers of high-rise apartments, both existing and new, are tending to downvalue them um, by 15 to 20%. Mm. Uh, And of course, if you're unfortunate enough to be at uh, Mascot Tower, then you're valuing it down probably 80% now based on what's going on there. (laughs) So there is is a fundamentally different dynamic going on with apartments relative to small 
more custom development. But I think small custom developments, builders seem to be able to uh, to, to make it work. And of course, the councils like it too, because every time um, they subdivide, well, there's a nice little fee going back to the councils too. That's right. Well, yeah, you're doubling, doubling your rates really, aren't you? Yeah. Um, we've just got a, a couple of charts up on uh, Sydney affordability we might work through um, in a moment, but I'll just, uh, just kick off with uh, anecdotally, and I think it was actually one of your listeners that, that called in uh, finding out some more information about the Walk the World Fund uh, was saying that in Sydney at the moment, uh, for houses you know, in the area they were looking at one and a half million in the inner west of Sydney, they weren't even allowed to have an inspection. Um, they just had to put in an offer, you know, and it was just that you know it's that tight now um, that they, they, you know, they're, they're just feeling like it's it's so overheated that um, you know you shouldn't be participating at this time. Well, it was you know wasn't appropriate for them, so um, yeah, it's pretty pretty phenomenal. I don't know if I'd ever spend one and a half million dollars sight unseen on something. <laughs> Well, people have been doing that. Of course, they've been doing that uh, buying from Melbourne and Sydney up in, in Brisbane and uh, Gold Coast and Sunshine mm. Coast as well. So it has been a bit of a thing. Um, what I'd also say is that um, in some cases we're seeing two interesting phenomena, particularly on houses. One is underquoting. So basically the property is quoted as a much lower price than it's finally landed at. And that's deliberate to try and get more people to come in and basically you know, have a surge of enthusiasm and uh, you know, the psychology of, uh, of auctions is that people often pay more than they think they're going to pay. Well, that's definitely go out there in spades. And in fact, the, um, the New South Wales fair trading people are starting to ask hard questions now about underquoting. Mm. Uh, the second is that there's a lot of Dutch auctions going on at the moment. So effectively, you have to put a sealed bid in and, you know, whoever gets it, gets it. Yep. That's something we're seeing. And that's very untransparent. So you don't really know who else is competing. And uh, that is also giving uh, a bit of a kick to, to prices. And interestingly, the other fascinating factor that I'm seeing is that valuers are still quite coy about where they're prepared to value. So I've had more than half a dozen stories um, in the last month where effectively people committed to buy at a particular price, a house this is, and paid more than they were expecting to. Mm. And then they went back to uh, activate their um, pre-confirmed mortgage. Um, you know, it was an in-principle agreement, but the bank wasn't prepared to meet it. So they had to go somewhere else and try and get a uh, another loan at a higher price from a non-bank in this case simply because the uh, valuation came in lower than what they paid for it. Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. And under a lot of pressure as well. So that wouldn't have been an enjoyable transaction. Well, <laughs> you know, you paid bank. across your 10% and, yeah. you, you, you know, you know you're going to lose it unless you can find an alternative. And so they've got Hobson's choice, to quote a, a UK phrase, in other words, no choice at all. Uh, they have to go wherever they can go. And if they have to pay a higher interest rate, so be it. So mm. some of the non-banks are doing a really roaring trade in, in what I would call not subprime, but near prime, you know, right. where effectively they're actually just charging a higher interest rate because people are now uh, just being sucked in. So uh, the other factor in my surveys, there are a lot of people now saying prices have just got way off. I am not, I'm going to sit this out now. It's mm. got to the point where it is stupid. Everybody can see it's stupid. It's not going to end well. And in fact, uh, I might rent for a bit and just see what happens because the rentals are not going the same way as prices, particularly uh, in some of the inner suburban areas. So in fact, you can quite often now rent a place which is pretty good, much cheaper than you can actually buy it and you know, keep your options open. So I'm seeing some people choose to go that route. Mm. Okay. Yeah, well, certainly the rental growth has been certainly very, very weak. And, and, and you haven't, we haven't really spoken too much about apartments, but um, I guess there's... Yeah, so so as you said, media seems to be focused very much on the whole houses are houses house prices are booming, but apartment prices are are, are flat basically, and, and and rents are falling, and vacancies are generally up in Sydney, Sydney, uh, Melbourne, I guess mainly, and as you said, there's more supply coming on, um, but on the flip side, there's not a lot. Yeah, we'll probably have a hole in apartments in a few years' time, is because nothing's being approved at the moment. But that's 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 not affecting today's prices. You mean prices. The, the holes are not to do with poor quality construction and yeah. things falling apart? Right? Well, <laughs> and that poor quality construction is the other part. Is that um, you know there's a bunch of um, restrictions taken off, uh, which basically meant that you could put it through, build whatever you want, and flammable cladding and cracking and all that type of stuff, which has now come at least into the the forefront a bit more, whether it's completely out there so that's that sort of there's there's a very there's a lot of factors sort of against the housing that the the apartment market i'd be interested to see what you're i guess what you're seeing in terms of surveys in that front. 
uh, it's pretty chronic. So uh, a lot of people who bought um, off the plan a few years ago are seeing prices still well down from where they bought, uh, 20 to 30% down in some cases. Uh, those prices are also being impacted by the poor quality construction and flammable cladding. So the strata fees have quite significantly been rising for quite a few of those people. So they're paying a lot more than they expected to. Uh, it's also, of course, not helped by sometimes there are some owners who live overseas and they never took occupation, so they've got vacant properties in the blocks. And uh, in some cases, those people are actually very hard to contact. So some strata companies are finding it quite difficult to be able to, uh, you know, get these changes through, or indeed get the income coming in. So that's a real that's a real challenge. The other factor there is that the supply, of course, is driven by two factors. The first is the investment sector. So people bought not wanting to live in it, but to, to rent it out. And then they're finding that the rents that they can command are significantly down. Vacancy rates are much higher. I was talking to someone the other day who had six apartments across Sydney and Melbourne, and only two had any occupancy over the last year. Wow. So he had four vacant properties, right? Mm. And he tried to reduce the rentals by up to 30 to 35% and still couldn't get anybody to take it. And so the question then is, what do you do? Do you do you turn around and sell? Well, sure. Do you sell, but you sell into a weak market? Prices mm. are really falling. Do you hope that prices are going to come the other way a bit and then you know sell then? So there's quite a lot of statistical data in my survey saying a lot of property investors are scratching their heads thinking, do I sell now or do I actually wait till the spring when there might be a bit more upward momentum for, for units? And remember, there's no international migration and there's no um, students coming in. So a lot of the inner suburban uh, apartments, which were used for short term lets from students and from other people coming in to uh, you know, spend a few weeks, um, they've all gone. So there's a huge degree of vacancy. Um, and I was talking to somebody again the other day in my one-to-one, -one, and she said, look, I've got this really, really good tenant, and they're paying you know, a reasonable rent, not a massive rent, but a reasonable rent. But if that tenant were to leave, I know I can't relet the property. Hmm. So it's a really tricky situation, and that's true whether it's apartments or, in this case, it was a, it was a house. Um, but apartments is where the action is. And the other point to make here is that if you think about selling, you are one of, what, 150, 200 units in a high rise, and you've got 20 of those for sale at the same time. How can you differentiate yours from somebody else's? And the answer is you can't. So you've got this sort of massive um, problem of it all looks the same. It's all carbon copy, not very attractive. Uh, and then, of course, you end up fighting to try and get any price you can get. And that can sometimes uh, end up with a very significantly reduced price if you can sell. Mm -hmm. You could, I guess you could always buy one of those fridges with the screen in the door. I think they, they're sort of, you know, <laughs> might be a differentiating factor. <laughs> Throw it in with the deal. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, you're right. Um, should we have a look at some more chart? We've got a few more slides and charts up um, here. Hey, actually, can you pop back to the original, the, the affordability one to start? I think the... Um, yeah, it's just on this sort of cheaper than expensive versus historical values. So I guess what I... What I wanted to highlight for these ones is if you look at um, uh, so this mortgage payments versus rents, um, it's it's sort of about average in in Sydney and Melbourne. So um, yeah, so, so on a relative basis. So what I've done here is this is a percentile. So basically, one percent is basically it, this ratio of of the mortgage payment, and I've used an eighty percent mortgage paid off over twenty five years um, versus the the rental payment. Um, is basically at an average rate, despite interest rates being as low as they've ever been. Um, if you look at some of the other suburbs, some of the other cities, it's actually it's actually really cheap. So Brisbane, for example, Brisbane units in particular, where rents have been falling, um, uh, and there's there's and probably prices um, you know have fallen a bit as well. It's actually basically as cheap as it's ever been to 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 buy a, a Brisbane unit at the moment relative to either incomes or to uh, to rental payments. So yeah, it's a very different story between Sydney, Melbourne, and and um, and, and other other states. And the other part then is the um, uh, was there's that difference between the houses versus the units, where um, you know it is certainly you know if, if, particularly if you look at um, versus wages. So if you look at um, Sydney, Melbourne houses versus a full time the mortgage payment versus a full time wage, it's actually a little bit expensive. You sort of in your top 
you know, third of, of where you've been. Um, whereas for the same markets, if you look at versus um, uh, versus units, um, it's really, really cheap. It's in sort of your bottom 10% for, um, for, for buying a unit versus, a, versus a, the sort of medium full-time wage. Now, there are question marks about wage growth, um, but you know, there's sort of that, that clear divergence there. Um, and then the, the other, then if you flip around and then say the property price to full-time wage, and that's what, what your other sort of affordability measure, which is can you afford to actually pay off the loan ever or, or get a deposit on it, that's as, as expensive as it's ever been in most places. Um, it's, not, it's actually not too bad in Perth for units and, and Brisbane for units, but, but um, yeah, basically everywhere else is, is basically as expensive as it's ever been. So I don't know if there's that sort of anything that pops out of that. So there's certainly some huge divergences. Yeah, the divergences, I think, uh, are absolutely right. Across, of course, different geographies. And uh, just worth reflecting, of course, you know, if you take Perth as an example, right, prices peaked in 2013, mm. right? dropped back dramatically, and they're now moving up a little. And yet you wouldn't, you wouldn't believe that, that, um, you know, people are still trumpeting prices up in Perth well yeah but prices are up from a low base yeah, right? <laughs> yeah so yeah. you it all depends on where you, you know where you where you start the x-axis from mm -hmm. right? <laughs> funny that yeah. um the other point there is on the um uh, on the other side of the chart the right hand side you've got the gross rental yield and the net rental yield right yes and that's really relevant for investment property I'm fascinated by how often um real estate spruikers quote the gross rental yield which is the relationship between the prospective rental you could get if it was rented 100 percent of the time mm. relative to the price you paid for the property um, doesn't remember doesn't cover anything like the costs of buying the property in the first place or maintaining it or anything right it's just a, a top level funny number right yeah absolutely and, and that number is the one that is trotted out like you wouldn't believe as well of course property for investment purposes you know is paying five six seven times or whatever it is right that is useless it's meaningless and um the real one is the net rental yield right which essentially is looking at the, firstly the cash flow perspective mm. in terms of so if i've actually got a property and i'm paying a mortgage on it and i'm paying my strata costs and i'm paying management fees and i'm having to uh, make allowance to repair it and all the other things right compare that with the rental stream i'm actually getting so for example you might only have some um, occupancy for a proportion of the year rather than the full year um it's a completely different story and the net rental yield the true number is hardly ever reported and by the way i tend to do it before tax rather than after tax but um you know, mm -hmm. bit of a debate there so the real stake in the ground in terms of investment property is not gross rental yield it's net rental yield and yet that is the very figure that nobody wants to talk about. Yeah. And, and, and I think I was, I was making a comment to you, you know, that, um, you know, I, I think of um, and it, the cash flow is very important as well is in that there's this, there's this loss you, you take and it's uh, as a property owner and it, uh, probably it's easier, I think, when, when I talk to people about, um, you know, Uber is a good example of, of this cash flow thing where um, people who are driving for Uber don't, properly account for the fact that their car's depreciating all the time. And so they're like, oh, you know, yeah, I made $1,000 a week last week. But you're like, yes, but, but you've got to knock off the fact that your, your car, you, you drove all these kilometers and your car depreciated. And and because they don't see that as a cash flow, um, that's not something that gets sort of worked into the whole, the whole calculation. Um, and it's very similar on houses in that you buy a house and, and you rent it out, and you're going to have to, you know, every say 20 years, you've got to replace the kitchen and, and the, the bathrooms. Every seven to 10 years, you've got to do all your, your carpets and your uh, painting and, and all those types of things because you're just literally not going to be able to rent the place out if you don't do those. And, but, but because it's not a, um, because you don't see that cost every year, there's a, you know, whatever it is, a thousand, couple of thousand dollars a year that, that, that is depreciation that's happening that you can sort of, um, that the people just go, well, that, that doesn't count because I'm not actually paying the cash out. But once every five years or 10 years or whatever, when you do have the payment, mm. then it does count. And it's, and it's a big, it's a big, um, it's a big no, expense. I think that, that probably holds true. I guess if you sort of look at the, um, what would you call it, the span of property use as well, though. So if someone's, you know, if you're buying a, a, an older style house on a big block of land, you're probably happy just to run down the house anyway, because eventually, you know, it's just going to be a knockdown infill job like martin was talking about before it will turn into three or four apartments or whatnot but um 
I guess that's the to sort of play the devil's advocate, though, isn't it? It's really if you're buying if you're buying the the property for the house, you're probably making a mistake <laughs> because that's, well, that's the depreciating component of the. Yeah, but the I guess thing. what you're coming back to is this this whole and what Martin's saying about this whole gross rental yield is this gross rental yield. You got to you've, you've got to look after the house though because you've got to rent it. Exactly, you can yeah. probably get to knock off one percent or so off it straight away just for depreciation mm. type type charges yep. before you even start getting to cash flow type issues yeah, about sure. yep. what you're actually spending money on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and if you can't lend out at all, then you have zero, right? Remember that the, the uh, APRA guidelines is that you should uh, take eighty percent of the rental stream when you're thinking about repayment streams right. for a mortgage for yep. investment purposes, right? They changed that a couple of years ago. Um, it is very significant that people don't seem to um, think about it like this. What they what they tend to say is, "Well, look, I know I know I'm not making any money on a cash flow basis, but the capital appreciation that I'm going to get over the next <laughs> five years will more than cover any of that, and so I don't really care, right?" Well, I just refer again. Perth mm. peak price 2013 dropped by on average 30 mm. percent. Prices don't always go up. Nope. Yeah, and and I guess the the issue people have now, and what what a lot of these ratios are, while the affordability ones are, are quite you know either average or or quite cheap, the property price to full time wages or or even just the the gross rental yield are at basically record lows. Have never been more expensive, and so the issue you've got is now you now you're reliant upon um, now you don't have any backstop in terms of your rental yield. So you you know you because you, you're pretty much close to zero on on that or. Or worse, yep. and so now you can't rely on the fact that yeah, okay, my house price didn't go up, but you know I was, I was getting rent from it, and the rent was growing every you year. Dragging and, out of the line, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and so yeah. I wasn't going backwards. Whereas now you're basically saying it's all I'm, I'm all in. Yeah, that's I'm, it's right. either going up, and I'm going to be make a fortune out of it because yep. I've got so much debt as well. Now I've got mm, more debt behind it, so or it's going to go down, and I'm going to lose a fortune. Yeah, sure. And so okay, well, let, let, let's play. Let's play net rental bingo. Here's here's a question for you, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, what proportion of property investors across Australia do you think are underwater on a net rental basis? Uh, I, I can't answer because I think he's, you already told me, Martin, before that. I'll let, let's I'll let Tim go. Oh, net rental basis. Oh, I'd have to be. And so this is after inter- this is uh, after interest expense, but before tax. Before tax. Oh, look, it would have to be across Australia. It would have to be have to be a lot. Um, <laughs> would have to be a lot, yeah, Bingo. yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. I don't know. Be what more than half? Yes, it's well more than half. Yeah, yeah. it's it's about sixty five percent at the moment. Okay, yep. yeah, yeah, well. And, and if you then segment it to say, let's look at the types of people. Most people who bought a single investment property in the last two or three years are underwater. Yep, right. Those who have a portfolio of properties and have been at it for a long time are doing quite a lot better. Right, because they've got just more experience and a probably better portfolio. Mm. But also um, another sector that's doing really badly are what I call young affluents. So these are people who think they know all about property investing, bought two or three properties. And uh, in some cases there, it's more than 80% are underwater on a net flow basis. Yep. It is a remarkable story that nobody ever wants to talk about because it's Cause not... You get- Negative gearing, Martin. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> negative, that's right. Negative gearing yeah. on two percent uh, interest rates. Yeah. <laughs> exactly right. And yet, you know, they, everybody quotes the gross rental yield as though magically that's the right formula. No, 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 it's not. Yeah. And it, then, if you think about it like this, right, that opportunity cost, right, you had a certain amount of money, and you could have invested it in stocks or shares, or you could have invested it in property or even crypto, right? Now, what's the relative return of of those types of investments relative to? Uh, property, right? And in fact, at the moment, uh, quite often you will find that the better returns are not in property. Mm. And and you know, the, I guess the what a lot of people would say though is, you know, I, I if I turn up though, Martin, and I've saved myself twenty thousand dollars, thirty thousand dollars, I can turn that into a five hundred thousand dollar mortgage. That's it. You got the leverage though. Whereas yeah. uh, if I've saved twenty or thirty thousand dollars, I can't turn that into a five hundred thousand dollar share portfolio for, for no. good reason. You used to be able to. If you bought Dougie <laughs> coin a couple of weeks ago, you might be all right. But yeah. anyway. <laughs> yeah, and then, and that's yeah. right. So the leverage, the re- leverage, of course, is what people 
are again, looking for. Are hoping for, assuming mm. that prices continue to rise. Right? Mm. And that then comes back to the fundamental question, which is the strategic question. Why did prices rise from 1990 to now so much? And there are three reasons. De the financialization of property, so more investment property. Secondly, the deregulation of the financial system, so effectively more people were able to, to lend mortgages and the weakening of lending standards. And of course, cutting interest rates. Mm. All of the three, interest rate falls is by far the biggest. Yeah. Yep. And so, and, and that's where, yeah, so to maybe we flick to this next one. So this is now, I've just got a chart here showing, um, uh, so what have we got? So this is inflation. So inflation just is, because what I've done with a lot of these other ones is, is do some real numbers and some nominal numbers just so you can see. But, you know, I guess the, the idea is first just a, a reminder to people that, you know, I've got 40 years worth of data here, but, you know, inflation is now a lot lower than, than what it has been in the past. And, and we've had sort of 10 years of low inflation. Well, that's, of course, because cost of housing is excluded. Yes, yes. Well, and I've got the rents in a, in a minute. So then you go back to saying nominal ones. And so the, the chart on the uh, on the right sort of shows, it's a histogram showing where it sits in, in a, as a percentile. So so basically nominal wage growth at the moment um, is, is at its, sorry, back, uh, yeah, so nominal wage growth is at its first percentile. So it's basically in the bottom 1% of what it's ever been over the last uh, 40 years. Um, real wage growth is a little bit higher. Um, it's sort of in the bottom third, but that's basically because inflation took a tumble <laughs> in, recent, in recent times. But, but I guess what I'm, I'm saying is, you know, if you're buying because you're saying, okay, wages are going to be quite strong, and so because wages are going to be strong, people will be able to afford more and, and then be able to buy more is like, well, it certainly hasn't been the case. Maybe, maybe we'll get back to stronger wage growth, but, but we're, we're, there's certainly something structurally wrong with wages that, that the RBA has been complaining about for a while. Um, and then the other two macro factors, um, Martin was talking about it on the next slide, um, just the, the rental growth, which is, um, so nominal rent growth, which went backwards in the last year. So that's, again, that's its, its worst um, ever, or worst in the last 40 years. Um, and so it's the part where if you wanted to make, you know, you want to make money from, so, so, so maybe you'll find a, play, a property where you'll be able to get all these great benefits from it. But I guess what I'm saying, in, in aggregate, the system is looking at and saying the the aggregate house you know, rents are falling at the moment, and and rents have been quite weak for for the last little while. Although you do, it does go through periodic sort of rises and falls, as you can see. But but yeah, you, you'd expect over the long term to be to, for rents to grow slower than inflation is is, is its average. And then um, yeah, and then you have got the interest rates that final sort of chart. So showing that that's where it's all coming from. So, so your fundamentals are very, very weak. But um, unless you can sort of say, no, I think rents are going to grow much faster than inflation for a period of time, um, or, or wages are going to grow much faster than than what they've done for a period of time, then then it's hard to have a fundamental argument to say affordability is improving. Yeah. Except for the fact that the RBA things could get. You want things to be bad, but not so bad that house prices fall over, but, but bad enough that the RBA keeps wanting to keep interest rates low. Mm -hmm. That's your best hope. Yeah, and it's worth um, you know thinking about uh, the dynamics here, right, insofar that one of the critical issues is population growth, right? Yep. Mm. Popu population growth is now, I think, in the, in the last budget, is, is forecast to go backwards rather than forwards, mm -hmm. particularly if you look at migration. So international migration basically is you know close to zero. And of course, the longer we hit the border shut, the more migration is going to be a, an issue. So demand from people coming into Australia is way down. So the other sort of factor in this sort of supply-demand question is, well, where is demand for property going to come from? Yep. Well, yeah, and I think this is this is what we had the argument with, uh, well, not an argument, sorry, we had a discussion with, with Cameron on, and I think I'm, I'm sort of, sort of on Cameron's side a little bit on this one in that I, I feel as if, so, so we've got sort of five odd million households in Australia and there's this issue of saying, well, um, you know, there's a, the, the actual year to year supply and demand isn't that much. And so if, you've got, if, you, if people can afford it, then they'll have three flatmates rather than four flatmates, or they'll have two flatmates rather than three, or, or, or kids will move out from home sooner but then they'll move back in. I guess what I'm saying is that it's, it's quite elastic in terms of you don't need a very big change at all in terms of just a few more kids staying at home for another year mm. or, or a few more people having an extra flatmate or getting rid of an extra flatmate to actually take a lot of that demand and supply up. If that's... Yeah, so just in terms of the population, nearly 10 million households in Australia, right? One so, third yeah. are renting. Mm. Yep. 
two thirds have a property of which um, roughly half have a mortgage and half are mortgage free. That's roughly the, the top level numbers. Right? Mm. And if you look at the uh, age distribution of that, most people um, who are older will tend to be more likely to have reduced their mortgage or paid it down. Although, of course, more people going to retirement now with the mortgage than ever before. Mm. And of the three, the two that are rising as the proportion of the population renting and the proportion of people holding a property with a mortgage, the proportion who've actually got no mortgage but hold a property is continuing to drop. Mm. Yep. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I think the other big thing too is sort of talking about demand side, but also um, the and anecdotally and also in the news, you're sort of reading about um, senior Australians not actually relinquishing their larger properties um, mm. on the back of that, you know, for the same money, they're getting a much, you know, obviously newer apartment or something like that, but much smaller, um, and they're not seeing the value there. So they're going, okay, well, I'll just keep my, you know, my um, larger detached home in the suburbs uh, and see it out till retirement village. So obviously, then it's constraining supply for people wanting to, you know, to keep transitioning into those larger properties. Yeah. Yeah, there's about 1.6 million down traders. They're people who've signalled in my surveys an intention to sell over the next five years. Okay. Right? In theory. Mm. But when you actually ask them about the barriers to doing it, the first is they can't find an alternative property that they like in the area they want to buy because mm -hmm. it's too expensive. Uh, secondly, the financial transaction costs are too high, so they just say it's too difficult to do. And then thirdly, they get overrun by health issues or other factors that suggest that they have to then sort of change their strategy and do something else, whether it's into sheltered accommodation, aged care or, or whatever, right? And those down, down traders tend to be 50, 60, 70. The peak is sort of late 60s, early 70s. Mm -hmm. um, so there's going and a lot of them are sitting on very big properties at the moment. And uh, the question I have is, well, when they come to sell, Who's going to buy those bigger properties? Or well, maybe it's going to be builders who knock them down and um, mm. put villas on. In fill, yeah. But, uh, but the issue as well, from a, with your financial planning hat, Tim, on is if somebody says to you, "Yeah, I'm going to sell my sell my family home, and you know, I'll take an extra million dollars out, and and you know, and next thing you know, they don't qualify for the pension. For the pension, or, get rubbed out of the pension. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Yep. So, they've, so they've, they've downtraded, they've paid stamp duty, and. Um, you know, damage their ability to get the pension. Yeah, potentially. yeah that's right. And the so, pension is a key component to decision making in retirement. I can I can tell you that absolutely. much. Once you've got it, you don't like relinquishing it, regardless of uh, how how fat your bank balance is at the other end of the transaction. So, mm. yeah, cool. All right. Um, did we want to have a quick look at the yeah, rental so yields? Or just uh, mindful um, of time as well. So, yeah, so zooming in on some of Martin's. Um, Heat maps would be yeah, it'd be interesting to see. So yeah, so so this is just picking up the conversation. Remember earlier on we talked about net rental yield, right? What I've done is pulled out the data from my surveys at a postcode level, and I've mapped it using some geomapping tools that I have. And I thought I'd just quickly highlight the differences between different locations. So the first one is Melbourne. Melbourne is actually where the net rental yields are worst across Australia. This is where a lot of people are in negative. And in fact, that map shows you know, the more red, the worse it is mm. in terms of the net rental yields, right? There are a few pockets where things are a little bit better, but in Melbourne, it's uh, looking pretty sick at the moment. Well, I'm quite fascinated, Martin, that the centre of Melbourne, so where most of the apartments are, is yep. um, is mostly green. Yeah, but it's um, that's because, of course, an average, it's, it's average. So, that, you know, there are, there's a huge divergence. There are some that are doing quite well there. There are others right. that are not. Mm. Um, and of course, with averaging it, uh, yeah, you miss some of the. Yeah. And I guess it's, a, I guess it's probably the issue of um, if you'd lost your tenant in the last whatever, you know, there's a ten percent. Oh, sorry, is it five percent? What's the what's rate of sorry apartment vacancies now in Melbourne Centre? Oh, I think it's, yeah, it's I think it was close to ten percent. Yeah, it was it was higher than ten percent earlier on. It's come back a bit, but uh, yeah. still pretty. But significant. I guess if you if you if you've lost somebody, then that might not show, be showing up in that sort of net rental because it might be historical data. Is that right? Not. Yeah, so it's, it, it's, it is a, a historical series, so that's exactly right. Um, but it gives you a sort of relative feel as to where the, you know, where the trouble spots are and uh, 
you know, some of the high growth corridors, you know, if you look at Point Cool and Werribee, you've got big issues there. If you mm. look over down along, you've got issues there. Um, and then some areas within within Melbourne. In fact, it, I, I, what I didn't do here was to pull out units versus houses. There are some differences, of course, as well between this just, is an aggregate for the two. Yeah, just just on that, Martin, as well. Um, so obviously we've had a, um, you know, with the, with the considerations of last year, um, with things mm. like the rental holidays and, and yep. you know, obviously there was some, you know, largesse and, and support and all the rest of it. Has that, has that had to be sort of worked into your calculations? Yeah, so I've, I've included that. Remember, of course, that quite often the rental uh, holidays weren't holidays. They were just postponements. Yep. Okay. Yep. So quite a few people suddenly discovered, oh, hang on a moment, I've got to still pay that. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. So it's, a big, it's a, big, a big factor. And there are big stories now of two things happening. One is people being served with notice to get out because, of course, they now can, mm -hmm. and, and, and then moving to cheaper places right. to try and actually reduce the, 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 the rent. So, yeah, this is, a, this is a, a thing to watch. Rental stress is still building. Mm. Yep. If I then flick to Sydney, a bit of a similar story, but you can see how it's mostly out west. That's where a lot of the real issues are. A few hotspots closer into the city as well. And Bondi is one that pops up from time to time in some of my surveys. But a lot of it's out west, so Liverpool, Campbelltown, places like that, up to North Ryde, uh, and very significant issues there. So Sydney and Melbourne, um, if you're a property investor, you are more likely to be losing money on a cash flow basis rather than making money. So you better hope there's going to be significant capital growth. Otherwise, you're going to be uh, in, in pretty poor shape down, down the road. Now, compare that with Brisbane, right? Brisbane, completely different story. Brisbane's doing very well. Wow. And it's true for pretty much all of the suburbs in around Brisbane, Gold Coast, Sunshine Coast. So the whole equation with regards to property rental is completely different. Net rental yield in, in Brisbane is significantly better than Sydney and Melbourne. That's one of the reasons why people were looking to buy up there rather than in Sydney and Melbourne. We can also look at Perth. And again, you can see there are some red pockets, north and south, particularly of the city. In the city, doing somewhat better. And now, interestingly, in Perth, there are a lot of people, again, being served notice so that people can then actually relet their property with a 30% increase in rental. Rentals are going through the roof in Perth at the moment. So we're going to see some quite interesting changes there in terms of the net rental yield. Just just quickly, just quickly, yeah. Martin, as well. Sorry, just quickly. Uh, the, sorry, you obviously just covered off on the um, the green patches of Brisbane and Perth, two, yeah. two cities that had um, quite uh, uh, fortunate 2020s. Both have sort of been hit, I think, in 2021. Perth, Perth, Perth had a lockdown in 2021, didn't they? I know Brisbane just no. had one. No, it was, yeah. But um, obviously, do you feel there's some impacts there or has it sort of been a... a... It's part, it's, it was one of the factors. So it's clear to me that uh, the lack of lockdowns in some locations had a significant, you know, closing the borders had a significant impact. Mm. Um, but of course, up till quite recently, Perth rentals were going backwards. So yep. the capital value were down, was down up to 30%. The rentals were down 20 to 30%. We're starting to see that swing around now. Okay. Um, so we're starting to see a little bit more improvement there. But again, there are still areas where the rental returns are pretty, are pretty shaky. Um, ACT actually doing quite well, um, funnily enough. I think you'll find that's actually Brisbane. <laughs> yeah. to, I'm quite sure what happened there, but uh, we've got the same map twice. So, yeah, uh, the point is ACT is doing quite well. If you go to Adelaide, um, again, a few hot spots, but not so bad. So Adelaide, Queensland, Brisbane, and indeed Hobart, which is the other one, is also doing pretty well. There's a couple of uh, you know hot spots, but nothing significant. And if you go to Darwin, Darwin's doing quite well as well so mm. the point there is if you were a property investor and, and you said where do i want to invest to get a better return in a cash flow basis you would not buy anything in sydney or in melbourne, melbourne. Yep. you'd look in some of the smaller centers and that's one of the reasons why we're seeing very strong interest from property investors in hobart in adelaide in the queensland area gold coast sunshine coast and brisbane and even Darwin and Perth now. So that's one of the big dynamics that we need to keep a, a watch on. I'm seeing more and more people buying interstate mm. to get the benefit of those rental returns and avoiding Sydney and Melbourne. Yep. Makes sense. All right, very good. Um, was there anything from an investment point of view? Oh, sorry, well, the one is, um, it's, it's interesting to me, I don't know how much you, you, you look at it, but it's interesting to me that the, the regional part where you know there's obviously 
you know, there was a lot of stories coming out about people wanting to move out of regions and, and you know, certainly heard anecdotal evidence of people who are like, well, I can work from home now, so, you know, I may as well live next to the beach or I may as well live, you mm -hmm. know, in the country or whatever. Um, there would seem to be a short-term squeeze in terms of, you know, need for, for more houses and, and, and stuff like that. Is. But, you know, there is a lot of land in Australia and, and it would seem that, you know, you could build quite easily to, to expand that if... Um, to, to bring prices back down again. I don't know whether what your thoughts are on that or whether any regional issues, I guess. Yeah, so regional was really interesting. Very strong growth in the regions. I mean, I'm down in regional New South Wales here, and we've seen very strong growth. A lot of people coming and buying from Sydney with uh, Sydney money, mm. buying local properties, means that local people can't afford to buy. Um, you know, they're just getting priced out. Um, so they have to buy somewhere uh, further away from the beach or um, in other suburbs. So that's the first one. The second is, and there was a, a report in the AFR last week to suggest that maybe this was now turning and maybe people were actually now starting to think, well, actually, you know, regional uh, life isn't quite all we thought it was, right? And yeah, yeah. Uh, so there might be a little bit of a, a rebalancing. But what I can say is that there is still a significant demand for houses, standalone plots of land hmm. in many regional areas. And in fact, if you go up to somewhere like Byron Bay, um, or indeed on the Sunshine Coast, if you look at Sunshine Beach, those are the postcodes that have performed the best over the last 12 months. Mm. Okay. I guess they're kind of destination postcodes at the end, aren't they? they sort of, people might end up there at some point, so maybe uh, the COVID well, period's been the impetus to, to make the shift. Yeah, but I think also as well, there's been a lot of people who have gone to, yeah, I used to work from home or down to a week to now I'm at home and I think I can probably stay at home working from home. And so I may as well now, you know, do the, the wife and kids to, yeah, you know, a slower lifestyle and you know all that type of stuff, and pay pay the same amount for a, a place near the beach or whatever. Mm. Or, or three, and and people and people are still astonished at the difference in capital price of, um, you know, an on the beach place uh, up in Brisbane compared with you know a small place in Sydney and Melbourne. Sydney it's Melbourne. remarkable. Yeah, yeah. terrific value. And, and it is worth noting though that you know I think that certainly for a lot of those regional areas. Price growth generally is is pretty poor in terms of those. So so yeah. at the mo over the longer and cyclical long, long frame term, of history, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. If you look over the longer term, yes, you do better in the in the Sydney Melbourne axis in terms of capital growth. Mm. Traditionally, whether that will happen again, it goes back to the fundamentals. Yeah, about long term, you know, will, will it will it will it ease back? Will it continue? That yeah. goes back to our interest rate question, which is where we came in. Yeah, exactly. And so because because I sort of feel as if. You know, over the longer sweep of history, supply stuff will eventually work itself out. If, if prices are really high in in certainly regional towns, um, and there's lots of farmland and stuff around that you can gradually just subdivide and you know they, they grow bigger. Mm. Um, it's a lot harder, obviously, in in constrained areas. In constrained areas yeah. where people, everyone wants to live in Sydney, Melbourne, and or whatever it is, and and you got to so you know property construction prices get higher and you have to start buying stuff and knocking it down and that. Yep. So so you can sort of see where the the natural sweep of that comes to. Um, and then it's back to that natural sweep over the longer term of, um, yeah, if property rents aren't going to grow because um, there's actually lots out there and, and um, you know, inflation's not particularly high and, and there's all these apartments that are keeping alternatives down. Mm -hmm. um, wages aren't really growing. And I think RBA is sort of a bit stuck on how to get that growing again. Um, then, then it just, yeah, we've got one lever left, which is interest rates. And, um, yeah, we can keep pulling that lever, but... It's a question of how how much lower it can go, and and if it ever goes the other way, then then you, that's where you you're basically making a bet. Uh, to me, a housing bet at the moment is things are going to be. We're not going to get strong economic growth. We're going to get sort of quite weak or moderate economic growth. Mm -hmm. And as long as we're sitting in that phase where it's weak to moderate, um, maybe interest rates will tick down again. You can make some profits, but if you if things get too bad, then then you start losing. <laughs> If things get too good, then interest rates go up and, and you start losing. So yeah, I don't know whether you, Martin, whether you've. Well, I, I'm certainly with you. And there is a big debate, of course, whether rates are going to go up sooner than the Reserve Bank suggesting. You know, the Reserve Bank saying cash rate will stay until what, 2024, I think, was the latest I saw. Mm. Um, there are many people saying, no, 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 they're going to have to lift rates because inflation will start to, to come through. But that then takes you back to the structural inflation versus the sort of peaky inflation. Mm. China's, um, you know, numbers were very good, but off a very low base. They just 
just reported it recently. We're seeing a lot of that around the world. I don't see much evidence of real structural inflation yet. Hmm. So my own view is I think rates will be lower for longer. I'm not sure actually we've got a journey back from quantitative easing and from uh, ever lower rates. Um, nobody seems to know how to get back to a more normal basis of the economy. So my expectation would be very, very low interest rates for very, very many years. Mm. That's going to have an impact on the property sector. Absolutely. And it, it sort of, I guess, pose the question then, if we're going to have... So you're property bull, Martin. Yeah, I was going to property bull. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I, I am from, from, from yeah. the interest rate. What yeah. I'm worrying about is affordability, yeah. right? because yeah. it goes back to what I said. Remember that you have to pay that to capital. Mm. Right? And in, interest um, might be low, but if, in fact, your income's not growing then it becomes a bigger hurdle as to how to pay it off. And okay, you can extend the life of the loan 20, 30, 40 years. You know, China, uh, sorry, uh, Japan has got 50-year mortgages. Well, maybe, Japan maybe has 100-year mortgages. Yeah. Uh, that, that's true, yes. Yeah. So you have intergener... And, and basically what that means is you then turn a property from being something that you ultimately own to always renting it. You're just renting it back off the, the bank. bank. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely. right. And I guess it poses a question then, circling back around to our question of the week in a moment, but the um, the importance perhaps of seeing some macro potential come into play to try and retain the um, the benefits of low interest rates for people who want to purchase property, but then slowing down the investors and you know and trying to keep a lid on the whole thing as well. Do you think? Uh, <laughs> I'm sort of you know saying they should, but they probably won't. Yeah, fair enough. Okay, very good. Uh, well, look, thanks for your time again, Martin. Uh, great to have you on the show as always. And uh, of course, we've had our time with the Walk the World Fund and Super and uh, been speaking to a lot of your listeners. And a shout out to those guys that maybe have come across to our show as well. Um, uh, I guess for anyone who has just tuned in uh, and uh, isn't familiar of, of your site, do you want to just give a quick run through of uh, where we can where they can find you? Yeah, thank you very much. So there's uh, Walk the World is my YouTube channel and there I do daily shows on property finance and all things. In fact, Damien's on uh, again soon. We uh, you know, pick apart some of the economic issues as part of that. Uh, and I've also got my blog at digitalfinanceanalytics.com. Excellent. All right, mate. Well, as always, thanks again for your time and a uh, terrific show. And we look forward to getting you on again soon. Good to talk to you. Cheers. Okay, very good. And thanks to you, Damien. Thanks, Tim. We'll jump across to our uh, question of the week. Uh, so the question we've got is, uh, do you think we should have more macro prudential intervention? Um, feel free to check out what that means if, if you don't know. But uh, it, it, it appears to be maybe some a lever that's, uh, that we could be possibly heading down. Uh, we'll thank uh, everyone again for, for those that have watched in as well, of course, and uh, for another great episode. I hope you've taken away some great ideas. And if you haven't already, feel free to click like on the video to give us some feedback. Uh, if you'd like to see more of our content, head over to nucleuswealth.com forward slash content to stay up to date on news from us. Follow us on social media. And finally, if you know anyone who'd get something out of today's episode, let them know about it, share with a friend and help our show grow. Uh, thanks again for tuning in from myself, Tim Fuller and the team, and we look forward to catching you at the next one. Cheers.